Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. What a wonderful evening to be here at the Glenn Gould Studio. Thank you so very so much for coming and joining with us. I want to welcome you warmly to this uh, evening uh, to the Hill Family Lecture Series. My name is Michael Van Pelt, and I'm the president of CARDIS. If you're new to this series, the Hill Family Lecture Series is a series of talks highlighting the role of religion and faith that plays out in our common life. I want to especially thank the Hill family for their continued and generous support, which makes this kind of evening and many in the past happen. Tonight, we will meet Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who joins a distinguished line of past Hill lectures including Governor Mark Carney, journalist Rex Murphy, and most recently Washington Post columnist Michael Gershon, who spoke in Ottawa. The series includes many other speakers as well, including Lord Conrad Black, who joined us here tonight too. Again, I thank you for being here. I would like to take a moment to welcome a few special guests who are with, this, with us this evening as well. Please welcome with me most specifically, our ambassador, Ambassador Andrew Bennett from the Office of Religious Freedom. Andrew, very good to have you. What an appropriate time to be here. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have many other distinguished guests with us tonight. Judges, members of uh, Parliament, and members of the Canadian Armed Forces. We at Cardis respect your role as public office holders. And we want to do that tonight because your role is also a role to protect religious freedom and allow people of faith to live actively in our public life. And we're grateful for your role in that tonight. So tonight, let's give them a hand. Yes. Tonight, I also want to thank our sponsors for this evening. A very big thank you goes to the Caritate Foundation, uh, to John and Rebecca Horwood of Richardson GMP, to the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, and to Convivium Magazine. Again, we're grateful for supporters like these who help make our work at Cardis possible. Now, I also especially want to thank an unnamed patron tonight who many months ago actually seeded this effort and actually spurred us on to today. We're grateful. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, we are. Cardus is a think tank. The word Cardus itself is an old Latin word, the main street that runs through the north-south road of a Roman village. The Cardus was the heart of public life since it housed places to buy and sell, places to work, places to govern, places to play, places to worship. Cardus does research on all these institutions and their activities and how they relate and interact together. Cardus is profoundly faith-based. Our research finds deep roots in the Christian social tradition stretching back more than 2,000 years and even earlier, building on the Jewish tradition of which we are grateful heirs. So in our work, whether we're arguing for the dignity of life in palliative care strategies or for fairness in construction tendering policies or parental choice in education, we're always trying to find ways that old ideas and old voices can find new life and be heard again in contemporary North America. In addition to our research, Cardis also publishes magazines devoted to faith 
in our common life. Convivium, one of these, published, uh, the, these uh, documents, is our flagship publication. And it is particularly concerned, concerned about sharing stories of faith in our common life in a Canadian context. It's, pu it's published articles from Margaret Somerville, many of you who know her, Marilyn Robinson, Jason Kennedy, and even Ambassador Kevin Vickers in the most recent edition. If you look, by the way, at the card you're handed to on your way in, you'll see that you are actually given a free copy of Convivium if you are already not a subscriber. We just ask you to fill out that contact information on the back, drop off your card as you exit tonight, or at the registration table at any time. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the really, really good part and exciting part. You'll also note that there is an option to give a donation. <laughs> I was actually serious, ladies and gentlemen. A donation to Cardis on the bottom of the card. As a registered charity, it is true, Cardis has always relied on the kindness and generosity of numerous supporters who provide a range of small and large gifts. So if you feel that the work we do, especially after tonight maybe, is something that you would like to play a small or large part in, I respectfully ask you to fill in that card or come see me or any one of the Cardis staff to help you with that. As you think about this, one recent initiative that we're extremely excited about and I want to share with you is our Faith in Canada 150 initiative. This is a high-profile series of events, of projects, of conferences, and of conversations that we are doing now up to December 2017. And its purpose is to celebrate Canada's 150th birthday and specifically the role that faith and religion has played in shaping Canada to this day. We, in this case, are connecting all the major faith communities in this effort, including Christians, Sikhs, Jews, Muslims, and Hindus, and more. All these communities have stories, some good, some challenging. And as 2007, 2017 year, uh, nears, Cardis is proud to tell these stories. Cardis wants Canada's next 150 years to include the flourishing of religious freedom. As you leave tonight, we'll be giving you a brochure to help you learn more about Faith in Canada 150 and how you can actually be involved. Now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I want to welcome two men who will join me on stage tonight. Father Raymond D'Souza is currently the editor-in-chief of our Convivium magazine. And you will know him mostly for his weekly columns in National Post, a spectacular one, Father Raymond, that just came out today. Now, Father Raymond, he is a parish priest, believe it or not. He has a job that he does every single day on Wolf Island near Kingston. How in the world does he show up in Poland interviewing Lecluenza and then off to Rome? I do not know how he does it. But as you know, ladies and gentlemen, Father D'Souza is one of Canada's senior spokesmen for the importance of religion in this country, and we just like him in that spot perfectly. So he's going to interview and uh, converse with uh, Rabbi Sachs. And tonight, it's our distinct pleasure to hear from Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Rabbi Sachs is currently the Ingeberg and Ira Renert Global Distinguished Professor of Judaic Thought at New York University and the Kressel and Ephrat Family University Professor of Jewish Thought at the Yeshiva University. He's also Professor of Law, Ethics, and the Bible at King's College, London, UK. 
In recognition of his work, Rabbi Sachs has won several international awards, including the Jerusalem Prize in 1995 for his contribution to Dispora Jewish Life. He was the Beckett Fund. If you don't know, the Beckett Fund is the leading uh, legal organization fighting for religious freedom in the United States. He won that 2014 Canterbury Medalist for his role in defense of religious freedom in the public square. And, ladies and gentlemen, two weeks ago, and we are so delighted to hear this, Rabbi Sachs was awarded the 2016 Templeton Prize for his work confronting religious violence, making a rather bold claim that religion in our secular age is not the problem, but might be the best solution for living peaceably with each other. These insights are summed up nicely in Rabbi Sachs' powerful and most recent book, Not in God's Name. Which, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, you can even buy tonight. And if you work it out well, you could get that thing signed. Let's see how that happens. Now, you know what? I could go on with many more details and many more stories about Rabbi Sachs and his awards and his books and his thinking. And you'll hear some of that tonight. But these do not compare, and he would attest to that, they do not compare to the beauty and goodness of 46 years of marriage to his wife, Elaine, Lady Sachs, so wonderful to have you here tonight, Lady Sachs. And to the and to the and to the wonderful joy of his children, Joshua, Dina, and Gila, and several grandchildren of which I am jealous, as you know, uh, Elaine, that bring to his life and to and to their life in London. I found out they all live within three kilometers of each other in London. Imagine that. You are a blessed blessed couple just for that. So, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce to you the world's foremost Jewish scholar. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in conversation with Father Raymond D'Souza. That's a very uh, extravagant but well-deserved introduction, and congratulations on the Templeton Prize for our Hill Lecture series. We haven't had any Templeton Prize winners yet, so... Um, Raymond, a very wise man once said, compliments are fine, so long as you don't inhale. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you must have been holding your breath for most of the introduction, then. It was... <laughs> And welcome to our guests here at the Glen Gould Theater. It's my first time in this theater, and I'm not, I was struck when I saw the set with these slats that comes, there's several scenes, biblical scenes, where people are peering through slats, some of them Indeed. looking Song on good things, some looking on scandalous things, so we'll, we'll try and behave ourselves uh, tonight. Uh, the Templeton Prize comes at the end of a very distinguished uh, career, but the Templeton Prize highlights uh, the relationship between uh, religion, often in science, which we'll talk about later in our conversation, uh, but particularly uh, there's a focus on this question of religious violence, and although it honors a lifetime of scholarship, it does come on the heels of this most recent book, Not in God's Name. 
Maybe we'll begin with that. Why did you decide to write this book, and particularly from an explicitly theological, and if I could say biblical theology point of view? There have been a lot of books, especially since 9-11, about interreligious cooperation, faith and violence, and so forth. What sets yours apart would be that it's an explicitly theological and biblical approach to the question. Mm. Well, there's absolutely no doubt that the process began when, together with the then Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, Chief Rabbi of Israel, leading imams and gurus throughout the world, we stood together at Ground Zero during the World Economic Forum in January 2002 and offered our prayers at the spot. And that was when I just felt with overwhelming power the two faces of religion. On the one hand, the wreckage of 9-11 and 3,000 lost lives. And on the other hand, religious leaders from around the world praying together and respecting one another and soul touching soul in prayer. And I suddenly realized that religion is fire. And fire warms, but it also burns. And we are the guardians of the flame. And I resolved then and there to write a book as a Jewish response to 9-11 and our global responsibilities in the 21st century. And I wrote it to be published as it was on the first anniversary of 9-11. It's called The Dignity of Difference. It's a controversial book, but I thought you have to take risks when the stakes are so high. But at that time, I realized that that was the beginning, not the end, because I had to go more deeply into theology. And if I can just give you the moment that I knew we had to do the theological work. A year earlier, in the summer of 2000, the United Nations gathered together 2,000 religious leaders from all over the world to something very modestly entitled the Millennium Peace Summit. You can tell how successful we were. One year <laughs> later, we get 9-11. And I, I spoke at that conference. Um, I also realized that religious leaders are quite similar across all the faiths, were quite good at giving sermons and quite bad at listening to them. <laughs> and uh, one after the other got up and said, in effect, the world needs peace. Our religion promotes peace. Therefore, if everyone was of our religion, the world would be at peace. And I suddenly realized that wasn't the solution. That was the problem. I suddenly realized that the real problem when we are thrown together in this global and interconnected age is can we make theological space for the other? The one who is not of my faith. The one who stands outside my circle of salvation. And that is the real hard theological work. And we better do it or else because our powers of destruction are so great. And if religion is, as it undeniably is, part of the problem, then we are called on, I think by God himself, 
to make it part of the solution also. So that's when it began. The, uh, the heart of the book, not in God's name, is an examination of the roots of conflict between, if you want to say, factions, parties, communions. And you root it in the sibling rivalries that are so dominant in the book of Genesis. And why that's interesting, if I might summarize for those of you who haven't read the book, you say that if everybody, if all Muslims thought everybody should be Muslim, or all Christians thought everybody should be Christian, or Catholic, or Protestant, or Jews, um, that wouldn't solve the problem because you say that, okay, fine, the Muslims come after the Christians and replace, supersede, displace them, Christians after Jews. But you go back and you say, okay, right in our foundational scriptures, at the very beginning, before there's anybody else, even within the bosom of the family, there's conflict. And you talk about how Cain and Abel, the older and the younger, the younger usurping the place of the older, Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, mm. Jacob over Esau, Joseph over his brothers. And that's the dynamic where you locate, long before there's Christians and Jews, Muslims and Christians, that's where you locate the seeds of rivalry. And we'll get to what you see as the seeds of reconciliation afterwards. Mm. But when did you happen upon that? Or what did, I mean, when you were a young rabbi, when you were a young scholar, is that how you read those stories, or did that come to you later? No, I read those stories. We're talking about the five sibling rivalry stories in Genesis. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, and the two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And I read them the way everyone reads them, on the surface, sibling rivalry. But then, you know, when you're looking at the roots of violence, and our world has become very violent. I mean, whole swathes of the surface of this planet are imploding in a kind of black hole of violence. Syria, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, you name it. And, you know, you start looking at the roots of violence. One of the most interesting discoveries I made was the discovery I made about Sigmund Freud, which is that Sigmund Freud, who is famous for seeing the roots of violence in terms of the Oedipus complex, fathers and sons, was actually very aware that the real root of violence was sibling rivalry. Whenever Freud talks about sibling rivalry, his writing becomes red hot. Mm. And his biographers we're all interested in this. How come, since he saw this, didn't he make that the centerpiece of his system? And I found it really interesting. The story is this, and it's told by most of his biographers. Sigmund Freud was the only boy in a family of girls. He was thoroughly spoiled. And then something terrible happened. His mother, without consulting him, had another baby, and this time it was a boy. Aha. Uh -huh. A young baby called Julius. And young Freud did not like this at all. He was a serious usurper of his most favored child in the family situation. And it seems that the very young Freud harbored some rather malicious thoughts towards his brother. Julius died 
before his first birthday. And it seems as if Freud repressed a sense of irrational guilt throughout his life that his he had thought bad thoughts about his brother and his brother had died. And I suddenly realized if Freud knew that sibling rivalry was the primary driver of human violence, the Hebrew Bible certainly knows that because almost the theme of Genesis is sibling rivalry, this drama in five acts. And if the Hebrew Bible and Sigmund Freud agree, then you sit up and take notice, right. you know? There you are. So, you know, I kind of, having psychoanalyzed Freud, as I once said, as you know, uh, psychoanalysis was once dismissed as the Jewish science because everyone except Jung was Jewish. But then I always said, if you're not Jewish, who needs psychoanalysis? <laughs> uh, but at that moment... I had thought we wouldn't do <laughs> rabbi jokes tonight, okay. but you can't. <laughs> but at that moment, you know, when, when I suddenly saw with huge clarity how the Bible... And I, I do see the fundamental theme of the Hebrew Bible is... How do we confront violence? The Hebrew Bible is really a story about the sovereignty of right over might. So how do we confront violence? And Genesis does this by being very blunt about these sibling rivalries. But even as soon as I started thinking about these stories, it suddenly dawned on me, look at these stories, for instance, and eliminate everything except the last scene in every case. Last scene in the story of Cain and Abel, Abel is dead. Last scene of Isaac and Ishmael, they're standing together at their father Abraham's grave. Last scene, last major scene of Jacob and Esau, after years of conflict, they meet, they embrace, they kiss, and they go their separate ways. Last scene of Joseph and his brothers, the last chapter of Genesis, forgiveness and reconciliation. So it was clear that the sibling rivalry narratives in Genesis are not simply variations on a theme. They describe an upward curve moving from violence to forgiveness. And I suddenly realized there's more going on in Genesis than meets the eye. And that is when I reread all of those narratives. That's the central bit of the book. And suddenly realized we might have here the answer to the sibling rivalry that, in a macro scale, has poisoned relations between Jews, Christians, and Muslims over the centuries. Well, we're going to come back to the, rec to the resolution of those rivalry stories, but I'd like to just step aside to ask you to address something specifically to Christians and Jews, Christians who are uh, inclined to think about the enduring significance of Judaism, often turn to St. Paul. And the relevant verses of St. Paul are that to the Jews belong the covenants, the promises, the prophets, etc. And that the promise of God is never, he doesn't repent of his promises, the promises are irrevocable, and therefore there's a living covenant, not a dead covenant or a covenant to be set aside. And that's where most, if you want to say Christian energy on Jewish on Jewish-Christian theological exchange takes place. 
You highlight some other verses that most Christians, I think, don't give a lot of attention to, which is that St. Paul uses the story of Ishmael and Isaac to speak about the relationship of, if you want to say, Judaism to Christianity in a way that you find, as a Jew, troubling. And maybe to sketch that out and to say, between Christians and Jews, how should St. Paul be read in that way? My guess is uh, Romans 11 that you're quoting from uh, became a key text probably only after Nostra Aetate. So, you know, that wasn't always Maybe the key just to text. Explain. Nostra Aetate was the, the... Vatican II statement on relations between the Catholic Church and other faiths, most notably the Catholic Church and the Jews, set in motion by one of the great figures of faith in the 20th century whom I salute as a man of vision and courage, Pope John XXIII, completed under Paul VI, which issued in 1965 this this document, Nostra Aetate, which almost overnight transformed the relations between Catholics and Jews from one of estrangement to one of of, of brotherhood and mutual respect. Uh, but there are, Paul is really working out the question, who am I? Paul was a Jew, as he keeps telling us often. But Paul knew, don't forget, Paul founded the Gentile church. And he needs to explain to his Gentile Christians who are you in the Abrahamic family? He's not worried about him. He's born into the family. But what makes you part of the covenant with Abraham? And so in Galatians, he contrasts the Jews who are under the slavery of the law with Christians who are free. And he says that's like Abraham and his two wives, Sarah, who was free, Hagar, who was a slave. So it's the Jews who are the children of Hagar, i.e. Ishmael, and it's the Christians who are the children of Sarah, i.e. Isaac. About 20 years later, when he's writing Romans, he gives a different analogy. He says, look, we can, Jews and Christians can have the same parents, but then Jacob and Esau had the same parents. They were twins. So look at it. Rebecca while the twins are struggling in her womb, goes to God and says, why am I suffering? And God says, there are two nations in your womb, and the older will serve the younger. So Paul obviously says to his audience, of the two of us, Judaism and Christianity, who are the younger? Obviously, we the Christians are the younger. Therefore, we have now become the chosen one We are the children of Jacob, whereas the Jews who are the older are Esau. Now, Paul therefore builds builds his Gentile church on those Genesis narratives and does so for reasons I'm not going to criticize at all. He's wrestling with the problem of the Gentile Christian identity and doing so in a way that he had to do it. But without being fully conscious of what this would mean throughout the centuries, he was telling a story about Christian self-identity that forced Christians into a relationship of sibling rivalry with Jews. 
And that is part of the long history of the long tear-stained history of Jewish-Christian relations throughout the patristic age and all, all the way through the, the Middle Ages. And it may be that Christians are not fully aware of this, but some very bold Christian theologians have written very strongly about it. And would you say then that a good way for both Jews and Christians, but especially Christians obviously to read St. Paul, is to look at the Galatians account, to look at Romans 8 through 11, and to see what's being worked out there is precisely a working out of the Abrahamic identity of the Gentile Christians. Uh, and in a working out, there are things that are picked up and emphasized for the purpose at hand, and other things that are not denied or rejected, but underemphasized. Would that be a fair way to read those 100%, texts? 100%. You see, having, Paul, having said all that, comes back in Romans 11 and says what you began by saying. So you can see that Paul did not want to create animosity between Christians and Jews. He wanted to tell his Christian Gentile church, you too are part of the Abrahamic family. But that doesn't mean that Jews cease to be. Now, if Abrahamic monotheism has a message that is revolutionary, it is that God chooses this one lonely individual, and then a family, and then a nation, who are small, vulnerable, who have to wrestle, travel through the wilderness, who get enslaved in Egypt. And this is the age of the first great empires of the world. The Mesopotamian city-states, the Assyrian Empire, the empire of Egypt, of the pharaohs. You had these huge empires. And here is God coming and saying, you know what? You don't need to be an imperial power or an emperor to be loved by me. And my symbol of love is this lonely man, Abraham, and his beloved wife, Sarah, and their longing for a child. And that is where I am in the love between Abraham and Sarah and their longing and their eventual. So the Abrahamic faith will always speak powerfully to people and say, you may think you're small and insignificant, but actually God has set his love upon you. And that is what made Jews so passionately Jewish and what makes Christians and Muslims so passionately devoted to their faith. The trouble is we read that language because it's so human. God is our parent, and he loves us. The trouble is that when you are a human child, and I'm one of a family of four boys, my mother wanted a girl, so we were probably a great disappointment to her. But, you know, so I know about sibling rivalry. You know, this is, uh, this is where I came in, in the, in the world. And uh, you, the trouble is you keep thinking about God as a human parent, and what makes sibling rivalry sibling rivalry is you're competing for this scarce resource of parental attention. If mom is looking after my brother, she's not looking after me, so I feel thoroughly threatened or neglected. And when you do that, you allow human conflict to enter this sacred domain. 
And what I've said is sibling rivalry is built on the logic of scarcity. There's only so much of something to go around. In the animal kingdom, there's only so much food to go around. That's why the firstborn chick gets first, and you then get the pecking order, right. because the number one who's oh, a bit older. That's where it comes from, pecking That's order. where it comes from. Because there's sibling rivalry among animals. Don't think humans are the only people who have it. And, and there it's a matter of life and death. I want my fair share of the food but before I'm going to let the younger chicks have, have anything to eat. And there it's a matter of survival. In humans, the scarce commodity is parental attention. But God doesn't work through the logic of scarcity. God embraces all of us. So I'm really delivering a message in the book of radical monotheism that I think would make sense to everyone who sees themselves as part of the Abrahamic family. I tried to create a kind of Abrahamic theology that worked whether you're Jewish, Christian, or Muslim. Essential to being a Jew is the acceptance of God's election, that God elects some, that he chooses, that he chooses the ones that the world would not choose, uh, that there is a chosenness, and that's emphasized certainly in the sibling stories. Your contention in the book is that chosenness doesn't imply rejection, whereas you see the long history of Christians and Jews and Muslims reading salvation history is that in choosing one, God rejects the other. Mm. How is it that if that is the incorrect reading, it predominated, at least in your account, for so long? Well, it's pretty obvious. When Jews read the Bible, they read the Bible in the company of other Jews. When Christians read the Bible, they read it in the company of other Christians. When Muslims read the Quran, they read it in the company of other Muslims. So we're great and the other lot are terrible. That is the logic of identity. Identity means I am part of a thing called we, who are defined in opposition to the people called them. And uh, identity is always in opposition to somebody. So when we are reading our sacred narratives, we're telling, us, we're telling ourselves we're the great guys, we're the heroes of our story. Not until quite recently did Jews, Christians, and Muslims ever read those texts in the company of one another. So those readings never emerged. You always read them the straight way. We're the chosen people because we're children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how Jews read them. That's how Paul showed Christians they could read them. Islam works a slightly different way by tracing the lineage through Ishmael and saying Jews actually falsified the Bible to make it look as if it passed through Isaac. So until the relatively recently, People of different faiths never read their sacred texts in the company of people of other faiths. So they never really thought, what would it be like to be Esau, reading the story of Esau and Jacob? Or what would it be like if I see my ancestor as Ishmael and Abraham throws him out, or Sarah throws him out because she doesn't want him mixing with my son Isaac. So we never sat and read those texts in the global interconnected context that we now have to read them. But if I might challenge that, if you, if you were to read the text just as Jews, and you read that Cain's sacrifice was not 
accepted, preferred, enables, was. Okay, you can say, well, it doesn't mean the Keynes was rejected, so I can work with that. But when you come to Jacob and Esau, the, the language is very strong. God does not not accept Esau. I think the term God hates Esau. So leave aside the hang fact on, that... Hang on, hang on, hang on, one second. <laughs> Let's get our biblical chronology here. That sentence, God hates Esau, comes from Malachi, at the last of all the prophets, at least a thousand years, in real time, uh, nearer 2,000 years, after the story of Jacob and Esau. Mm -hmm. So that's a very, very late line in the Hebrew Bible, highly specific to the political circumstances of the Israelites against right. the Edomites. And, you know, just Malachi, but go back and read Genesis 27. You know the story. Jacob, uh, Isaac, who is old and blind, wants to bless Esau before he dies. Ask Esau to prepare some venison for him. Rebecca overhears this. She already had the oracle that the elder will serve the younger. She knows the younger, therefore, is chosen. That's Jacob. And you know the story. She prepares the venison. She dresses uh, Jacob up in Esau's clothes and tells him to take the blessing. Read that story. And then Jacob comes in and Isaac is perplexed. Who are you, my son? You know, he says, I am Esau, your firstborn. Are you really Esau? You sound like... Isaac. Like, you sound like Jacob. Let Jacob. me feel you. So he feels this rough skin that Jacob is wearing and says the hands are the hands of Esau, but the voice is the voice of Jacob. And he's still not sure, etc., etc. And then he blesses him. Jacob leaves. Esau comes in. I want you to... I don't, Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac, is there one word in the entire text that tells us what the feeling of, Je of Abraham was, or Isaac? It's fraught with background, as Eric Auerbach once said. We have no idea. There's not one word on Abraham's emotion or, or Isaac's emotion. But when Esau comes in and Isaac suddenly realizes that he has been deceived by his younger son, it says, Isaac trembled very greatly. Esau let out a loud and bitter cry. Now, English is so polite, a language, that you can't really feel the force of the Hebrew. Those are the most emotive passages in the entire Mosaic books. Nowhere is emotion described with such overwhelming power. I challenge anyone to read Genesis 27 and not sympathize with Esau. You can't read it and sympathize with Jacob. There's no way. So we can see that we have here a very complex narrative because on the surface, Jacob was the chosen one and Rebekah was right to take the blessing and all the rest of it, that's the surface narrative. But if you really listen and say, who is this narrative forcing us to sympathize with? It forces us to sympathize with Isaac loving Esau. And you remember, Esau begs, haven't you got one blessing less for me? And he finds a blessing for him. 22 years later, they meet again. 
And this time, Jacob is terrified for his life. And you remember the scene at night when he's wrestling with an angel, and he wins the battle and gets a new name. The next morning, read the text. He bows down to Esau seven times. If you've just defeated an angel, you don't bow down to your twin brother seven times. He calls him Adoni, my Lord. He calls himself your servant. When Esau says, what's all, this, all these flocks you've sent to me? Jacob says, take my birkati, take my blessing. Now, I don't know why biblical commentators have not understood what's happening in that chapter. In that chapter, Jacob is giving Esau the blessings back. You remember from the dew of the heaven and the fat places of the earth? Material blessings, wealth, and be lord over your brothers, and let your brothers bow down to you. Dominance, power. Jacob takes those blessings 22 years later and gives them back to Esau. Now, this is not the way you read the narrative in the past. Am I right? Correct. It's not the way any of the commentators read the passage. But suddenly, I realize that's what's going on. The Bible is forcing us to sympathize with Esau, to say that Jacob was wrong to take that blessing. That was never the blessing Isaac meant for him. Wealth and power are not the covenantal blessings. The covenantal blessings are land and children. And Isaac gave those to Jacob with Jacob dressed as Jacob. So look at the Bible and you see it's constructed an extraordinary complex story because it means one thing on, us, on the surface and another thing beneath the surface because it wants us as kids to accept there's such a thing as sibling rivalry, but when we're grown up to realize the Bible is telling us a much deeper message. And I honestly believe that if you go back to the biblical text and read it the way I've read it in the book, you will say, you know what? That's actually what the Bible is saying. And we would see, I think more commonly, uh, in terms of sympathizing with the wronged party in the story of Ishmael and Isaac, that's yeah. very clearly written in a way to make the reader sympathize with Ishmael and Hagar. You can't not. Yeah. Genesis 21, the water has run out. It's the heat of the day. They're in the desert. Ishmael's about to die. Hagar sits away because she can't bear to look. There's no way you can read that chapter and not sympathize with Hagar and Ishmael and not with Sarah and Isaac. So this is an extraordinary narrative, and it is forcing us to realize that sibling rivalry is not what God wants us. One of the dynamics that you bring out of these stories, which relates to Jews before Christians, Christians before Muslims, uh, chronologically, uh, is the dynamic of the younger, the elder and the younger. Uh, and that the elder would, by rights, be the one senior, and then the younger one displaces, usurps. Uh, in the Catholic world, one of the great moments in this, you mentioned Nostra Aetate of 1965, but in 1986, John Paul went to the great synagogue <coughs> the first time a pope had gone to a synagogue. And it was a very historic meeting, and when he went there, it was a very emotional gathering, he used this phrase about the Jews, our elder brothers in the faith, uh, which given the history, tear-stained history, as you mentioned, resonated 
greatly and was massively well received, both by Catholics but especially by Jews. Some 20 years later, uh, Benedict, who was a biblical scholar, theologian in his own right, makes his own visit as Pope, and he offers a playful but serious correction to John Paul because he said, when we read the biblical stories, the elder brother gets the short end of the stick. So let's not say our elder brothers in the faith, but our brothers. And is that, you know, in those two uh, encounters there, is it, we can use this as a metaphor to see brothers as opposed to elder or younger, or usurper and displaced? How does that dynamic play out? Because it, it does seem very clear that, that the younger one is the favored one, favored by God, it seems. 100%. Mm -hmm. But it takes a pope to point out that a pope made a mistake. So, <laughs> so I couldn't possibly comment on that. <laughs> However, I will give you my own personal answer, which is, as I mentioned, my mother had four boys at four-year intervals, and I am the eldest. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> So I decided long ago that uh, each successive brother of mine was more chosen than I was, and I've just been trying to fight back ever since. <laughs> <laughs> at the, uh, not at the end of the book, but at the concluding part of the heart of the book on the dynamics of sibling rivalry, uh, You say, what if it turned out to be God's way of saying to us all of these stories, what he said to Cain, that violence in a sacred cause is not holy, but an act of desecration? What if God were saying, not in my name, title of the book? Such a suggestion sounds absurd. Jews, Christians, and Muslims have been reading these stories for centuries. Is it conceivable that they do not mean what they have always been taken to mean? Then you say, it's not as absurd. Uh, because of the answer you gave. We're reading them within our own tradition. So you're offering a not entirely novel. It's quite well demonstrated where the resources for this are in the book. How is this, let's say, novel reading, just for ease of comment, uh, how has it been received in the, you know, in the months the book has been out, and especially in the uh, Islamic world where, at least you know, today, this is needs to be heard. This argument is being worked out in a very dramatic fashion. Look, since 9-11, there have been thousands of books written on this subject of uh, radical religion, terror, mm -hmm. radical Islamism, and so mm -hmm. on. And it's all very party-pre, you know. Uh, you, you can't read those books and not work out who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and where you are speaking from. I tried to, to write a book that would make sense to Jews, to Christians, and to Muslims. Um, I've been overwhelmed by the positive response of Christians to the book. But I've been no less moved, deeply moved, by the response of Muslims to the book. A Muslim whom I greatly respect, Irshad Manji, wrote a beautiful review of the book for the New York Times. Akbar Ahmed, who's head of Islamic studies at the American University in Washington and a former 
Pakistani High Commissioner of Britain, loved the book and we did a beautiful public conversation in Washington on the book and I think that's on the web for anyone who wants to see it. Um, just last week, Elaine and I hosted 20 leading Muslim lay people in Britain who've taken it on themselves to mentor young Muslims. And they too had read the book and responded, really wanted to come and talk and be guided as to a way forward. One of the things that has happened, not only in Islam, but obviously most pointedly in Islam, is the radical voices have been the loudest and the most noticed. And it seems to me that you can help. Every religion has to do the work for itself. But sometimes you can help people in another faith by saying, look, guys, I can't do Islamic theology for you, but I can tell you how, as a Jew, I understand these narratives, which are part of my faith, and they're also part of your faith. Those stories are retold in the Quran and the Hadith, and they're part of the faith of Islam. And sometimes, you know, just as Jews were inspired by, for instance, Kierkegaard in his wrestling with, you know, the self and, and the leap of faith, or Reinhold Niebuhr as a public intellectual, there were Jews who were really, who felt empowered by that. So I felt, look, if I can do this, I'm empowering moderate Muslims to feel we are not alone, because here's a scholar in another faith who is holding out a hand of friendship to us. And I think that was the Muslim response. Here is somebody helping us to understand what it is to be a moderate in a world of religious extremes, and what it is to do so, not from a secular or relativistic or pluralistic point of view, but from a point of view of somebody who is directly reading sacred texts and doing so in a very religious way. That's why this is a religious book. I deliberately put God in the first and last sentences of the book so that you could not take this as just a book of... Uh, political or uh, sociological theory or psychology. And I think Muslims respond to that because they are very profoundly driven by faith. One of the things that in my own commentary on these subjects I've said uh, is that the answer to a bad theology or a theology that has perverse effects, it has to be good theology. It yeah. can't be no theology yeah. to pretend that you don't, uh, that you don't believe. What is the, what is your impression about, I mean, there's one thing about Muslims, if you want to say diaspora Muslims, you know, I don't know what the proper term would be in Canada, the United Kingdom. Um, what is your expectation, hope, of this kind of argument resonating in, if you want to say, the Islamic world proper? Do you have any indication look at, of that? Look at what is happening today in the Islamic world. The primary casualties of the conflict within Islam are Muslims. Mm -hmm. Muslims are dying at the hands of their fellow Muslims, whether across the Sunni-Shia divide or the radical moderate divide or tribal divides. Muslims are being slaughtered in thousands and tens of thousands. In Syria, we've seen millions upon millions of refugees, 475,000 deaths. I mean, Muslims here are caught up 
in a horrendous internal set of struggles. And it sometimes helps people to say, you know what? We as Jews have known those internal struggles ourselves. Christians have known those struggles. Europe was scarred by Protestant against Catholic in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. You're not alone here. We, we know what it is to be caught in that kind of conflict. And here, from our historical experience, is a way out of that conflict. Um, so um, I really feel that, that there are Muslims who realize that they are doing great harm to their fellow Muslims. Can there not be a way out? If I could just shift a little bit to, uh, you're, we've been speaking as, uh, in terms of biblical theology, but when you were the chief rabbi, which by the way, one of the great titles of any job in the world, the chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth, I believe, which is impressive in a Commonwealth yeah, country. Yeah, somebody presented me with a soccer shirt for Manchester United with the chief rabbi on the back. Life doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, but in that role, you, one of the distinctive marks of your tenure was that you became a, a voice in English-British common life. And how then do both, in this case you were a rabbi with a, a voice in the common life of Britain, but for politicians, for police, etc., to speak about this question of radical Islamist violence. We had yesterday, or yesterday in Toronto, a stabbing. The police chief was describing the information he had. It was a young man, apparently quite unstable, but he had stabbed two military officers. And he told the police, well, the police chief reported that he was doing it in the name of Allah. And the police chief said something very interesting. He said, I don't want to, I think exactly what he said, I don't want to do any Islamophobia nonsense. That's what he said. I don't want to talk about this being an Islamic thing and get you know, this tar group of people. Some years ago, when the Toronto 18 were arrested, uh, there was a very well-known remark incident when the RCMP described the 18 men, all of them uh, young Muslims, as being drawn from the broad strata of Canadian society. And clearly what was, being, was, was animating that was the desire <coughs> not to inflame tensions, which I think would be a noble thing. We saw earlier this month in Cologne after the New Year's Eve riots that the police chief tried at first not to mention the religious dimension of it and then when it seemed that he was concealing he had to resign or was forced into retirement. So it's a very difficult thing to figure out how to speak about it. Uh, it's a very pressing issue in the United Kingdom how to speak publicly on this question of Islamic inspired violence. What's your advice? You know, if, if I went to the doctor and he examined me and he said, you know, I know exactly what's wrong with you. The only trouble is I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> I'd have a little problem finding a cure. I mean, we have to be able to speak about these things because if you can't name it, you can't begin to address it. I know France... You know, France has had this policy all the way through known as laïcité, so they can't talk about it in public. Now, has France solved its problem? 
The truth is France probably has that problem as acutely as any country in Europe, if not more so. So this failure to talk about it is really quite serious. And, um, but on the other hand, politicians can't do it on their own. I mean, you and I know that when politicians are re re reticent in speaking about religion, there's something good about that. Because that's what you know, modern liberal democratic states are about. Religion is spoken about by religious leaders and politics. Politicians stick to politics. And the confusion of religion and politics is very dangerous. So I've always felt that the politicians need our help. So when I was chief rabbi, for instance, I did a lot of work with the Muslim community. I used the television programs I used to make for the BBC, not just to show Britain the positive face of the Jewish community. On several occasions, I took the opportunity to show the positive face of the Muslim community because they didn't have somebody who was making television programs. So we were able to do that. So I think everyone knew that when I speak about Islam, I speak about a faith for which I have the highest respect and for individual practitioners of that faith who are close personal friends. And when we talk about radical political Islam, we, are, we know what we're talking about, a minority phenomenon in the world of Islam, but which is in great danger of radicalizing Muslim youth. The people most worried about the radicalization of young Muslims in Britain today is their parents. They are terrified. And since they are very often immigrants and their children who become radical were native born, were born in Britain, very often they feel that their kids don't really respect them. So uh, they have an issue of authority. So we, it's a very delicate issue, and people have to know that we are fully respectful of Islam as a faith and the moderates within it, but at the same time, we must not refuse to name the problem, which is radical political Islam, and that does not make us Islamophobic. I'd like to... Uh, to did anyone have any problem talking about radical Jews or radical Christians? You know, we're honest yeah, about that. And I think freedom needs honesty. Yeah. One of the uh, points that really struck me in reading the book is you deal with these sibling rivalry stories and you point out that there's a reconciliation that takes place um, more or less explicit. Uh, of course, with Joseph and his brothers, it's uh, almost complete. Uh, but you distinguish that there's two things that are going on. Uh, the entire process of reconciliation is told in detail. The issue is not forgiveness, you say. Joseph forgives his brothers without their asking for it, without their apology, and long before he tells them who he is. The issue is repentance. And this really struck me. You said, forgiveness is easy. Repentance, true change of character, is difficult. Yet it is repentance, moral growth, on which the biblical vision depends. I, I never thought that through, the distinction between the two. But forgiveness, if I've been assaulted against, offended against, I can forgive. 
Repentance I can't do. Repentance is for the offender to do. Exactly. Uh, I don't think really either of them are easy, but why do you make that not just an offhand comment, you say it's central to the biblical vision is repentance, not forgiveness. Exactly so. Um, supposing somebody's done me a great deal of harm, really injured me. I regard the resentment I feel towards them like I regard my heavy suitcases before the invention of these wonderful four-wheel suitcases. <laughs> what is politely known in Jewish circles as schlapping. You have a schlap to heavy suitcase. <laughs> That's what it is to go through life feeling resentment towards the people who harmed you. Why should I let you ruin my emotional life? So I forgive you. I have thus liberated my own emotional That's life. Awesome. That's great for me. But you, I don't give a damn about. I just don't care enough about you to feel ill will toward you. That is dismissive. Forgive me, that is cheap forgiveness. The real forgiveness that counts is when I know that you understand just how deeply you harmed me. And I don't want you to heal that because that can't be healed and besides which I've forgiven you that already. But I want you to know that you did me wrong and you have seen that and you have changed. Not because I don't want you to do it to me again. I've forgiven you. It's because I don't want you to do it to anyone else again. And when that happens, repentance has happened because responsibility has been accepted. Now, Germany was the architect of Der Endlösung, the final solution, the Holocaust. The Germans, after the war, wrestled with and accepted responsibility. And they deeply repented. And today, the only growing Jewish community in Europe today is in Germany. Because Germans, Jews feel that whatever happened in the past, Germany has done repentance. And it really has. I mean, it really has. But there are other countries that were complicit in the Holocaust that to this day don't see themselves as the perpetrators, but as the victims. And those countries have not done repentance. And in those countries, anti-Semitism is as alive and well today as it was in the 1930s. Now, let me be blunt with you. I forgive everyone because judgment belongs to the Almighty. And to be perfectly honest with you, he does it better than we do. So I don't harbor resentment against anyone. But if forgiveness is to cut really deep it goes to the people who have repented, and those are the people who see themselves as responsible and not just as the victims of somebody else. There's so much to discuss. I want to do a few current affairs, but I, before we get to that, I want to talk about this book called The Great Partnership, which was a four or five years ago, 
on faith and reason, God, science, and the search for meaning. And uh, there's many things about it that we could pick up. But what struck me is you present the text that we've been talking about uh, as a charter of freedom in a certain sense. And you actually take up the passage to Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Genesis 4, 6, and 7. And you say here, at the very beginning, is Cain, he's free. He has a choice to make. And in this <clears throat> relation between faith and science, you say science, the world of prediction, the world of order, the world of repetition, doesn't leave room for freedom in the same way as the Hebrew Bible. It is no accident, you write, that freedom occupies a central place in the Hebrew Bible, but only a tenuous place in the annals of science. If I were to tell my students on campus that religion, biblical religion, is the great friend of freedom and science, is its limiting factor, they would be astonished. <laughs> when I say that to is in Israel, the free God desires the free worship of free human beings, they say, are you mad? In Israel. In Israel, absolutely. This is a very paradoxical thing to say. The only possible justification for saying it is that it's true. Let me explain, and let me do it in a very simple way. Here are two things that sound very similar, but are in fact diametrically opposed, a prediction and a prophecy. What is the difference? If a prediction comes to be, it has succeeded. If a prophecy comes to be, it has failed. Are you with me? So Jonah is told by God, go and speak to the people of Nineveh. And he goes. I mean, not without a certain fracas with various marine forms of transportation. <laughs> but eventually he gets there and he delivers five words. In 40 days, Nineveh, I mean five Hebrew words, 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. Everyone listens. They repent. God forgives them. And Jonah says, God, I told you, you make me look like a shlomil. <laughs> I tell them in 40 days they're going to be destroyed, and here you are forgiving them. Jonah doesn't understand the difference between a prediction and a prophecy. A prediction exists in a determined world. You've seen the causes, you can predict the effects. Scientific laws make it inevitable that that will be the result. But a prophecy is delivered to free human beings who have the choice whether to heed the warning and repent or not to heed the warning and carry on doing as they're doing. So if the prophecy happens, it has failed. Because a prophecy is a warning delivered to free human beings telling them, guys, you better change if you want to avoid those consequences. Only if we can take a standpoint outside the limited physical world of scientific causality, have we got space for human freedom? Now, I actually 
believe, therefore, that the Hebrew Bible is the key text of freedom. Um, and we can see this in very simple terms. The Hellenistic, the Greeks didn't believe in freedom. The Greek literature is a literature of character and fate. So whatever Oedipus does to frustrate, or Laius does to frustrate the Delphic Oracle, everything they do to avoid the inevitable outcome just makes it more likely. The end is predetermined. There's no freedom in Oedipus. And that is the basis of the great contribution of the Greeks to human literature. They gave us the literature of tragedy. Now let me ask you a question. Jews have suffered a fair amount in this world, to be honest with you. So you would expect the Hebrew language somewhere to contain a word that means tragedy. Hebrew does not have a word for tragedy. When modern Hebrew was revived, you know what word they chose? Tragedia. They took it straight from, straight from the word tragedy because there's no Hebrew word for it. Why? Because tragedy is the fated and inevitable end that you struggle against helplessly. Whereas in Judaism, in the Hebrew Bible, which is literature of will and choice, there's no predetermined end, right? We say on our high holy days, on, Rosh, on the uh, Rosh Hashanah it is written and the day of atonement is sealed, who will live, who will die. And then, just as we sa start sounding like a bunch of Greeks, uh, we say, but prayer, penitence, and charity avert the evil decree. Tell any Jew that he's got a fatal disease, he goes and gets a second opinion. <laughs> So we never give in to tragedy. Therefore, the Greeks gave us a culture of tragedy. And it's a beautiful and moving and poetic culture. Jews gave the world a literature of hope. Hope is the principled rejection of tragedy in the name of human and divine freedom. In that freedom, we repent God forgives, and the bad that might have happened is averted. Now, these are two completely different literatures. Sixth century BCE Greece gave the world its two great left-brain disciplines, philosophy and science, both born in Greece in the sixth century BCE, gave the world philosophy and science, said to the extent that we are scientific, we have the Greeks to thank for that. Jews gave the world this literature of freedom and hope. And ultimately, the faith that we share, the Judeo-Christian heritage. And those are the twin foundations of Western civilization. That coming together of the Hebraic and the Hellenistic. And that is what Christianity did. It brought those two things together. Begun by Paul. And, uh, and that is the significance of Christianity. It was the bringing together of those two classical traditions. And uh, the end result is, as I said in the book, look, the great part, I wish I could summarize not in God's name in one or two sentences. I can't. I tried hard. I can't. But if you want to avoid having to read 120,000 words <laughs> on the great partnership, 
I can tell you it in two sentences. Here it is. Science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts things together to see what they mean. And it is the coming together of those two disciplines, the left brain and the right brain, the left brain of Greece and the right brain of, of Israel, mediated by Christianity is what gave us the greatness of Western culture. Very good. I'm going to... The organizers, who are my colleagues at Cardis, they have a script that's predictive, and we're going to inject a little. We're going to inject a little prophecy into the evening here. By, I'm going to extend it by asking two last questions. Um, one's a contemporary. No Jew ever has a last question. <laughs> there are, there are, there are. You know, pen, <laughs> pending further. <laughs> this. Uh, Introduced earlier this evening was our ambassador for religious freedom, Andrew Bennett, who's a great friend of ours at uh, Cardis and very well respected in its work. Uh, the government that set up that office, the term expires at the end of this month. Uh, we don't know. The new government hasn't decided, uh, hasn't announced what they're deciding. I mean, most people think it's not going to continue because it hasn't been renewed at this late stage. Uh, what priority should religious freedom play in the in this case, the foreign policy of, in this case, Canada, but the same would apply the United Kingdom as well. I think religious freedom <clears throat> is under attack throughout the world right now. Religious freedom is Article 18 of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948, and it is honored in the breach, not in the observance. According to the latest United Nations calculations, out of the 193 member nations of the UN, 103 are violating religious freedoms. This is incredibly serious. And Christians are dying throughout the Middle East and Africa because of it, and Muslims are dying, and there are conflicts that involve, sadly, some radicalization of Hindu nationalists, Sikh nationalists in Myanmar and Sri Lanka, even Buddhists. And we have forgotten that my freedom to live my faith must not be bought at the cost of your freedom to live your faith. And therefore, I think this is something absolutely fundamental at a global level. But at a local level, it's also under threat. I mean, we had cases in Britain where an airport worker was sacked for wearing a crucifix where just now a judge was dismissed for not being willing to give a child to adoption to same-sex parents. Dismissed as a judge. And I'm afraid, you know, um, I did say to a House of Commons committee a couple of years ago, um, I said, friends, I, I hate to bring up this embarrassing fact. But in 1620, some chaps got together on a boat called the Mayflower and set sail for America because they couldn't be guaranteed religious freedom in Britain. And if you uh, continue along the road you're currently continuing, I think I might book my passage on the next boat. So, um, I mean, the United States of America was created in order 
to guarantee religious freedom. The entire revolution of the 17th century, John Milton, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Benedict Spinoza, the entire foundations of Western freedom, born then from four people, two of whom were religious. Milton was clearly a deeply religious man. John Locke was a Sicinian Christian. By most standards, Hobbes and Spinoza were seen in their day as atheists. Yet all four of them are in dialogue with the Hebrew Bible. And uh, Spinoza is, is the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus of Spinoza is basically a commentary to the Hebrew Bible. Hobbes quotes the Hebrew Bible 649 times in the, in the space of the Leviathan. He is not in dialogue with Plato and Aristotle. He's in dialogue with the Hebrew Bible. Out of their deep study of the Hebrew Bible, they came up with, to my mind, the five greatest ideas of the modern age. Social contract, the moral limits of power, liberty of conscience, the doctrine of toleration, and most important of all, human rights. Here were people of widely different faiths and backgrounds reading a sacred text and saying, if we are to have the freedom to live our faith, we must guarantee others the freedom to worship other faiths. That is the basis of the modern liberal democratic West. So it is in danger even here. So we need a stronger defense of religious freedom locally and globally. And if that is a way of saying, please make sure that there is a successor, um, then I'm willing to put that as a visiting scholar. Not that I want to get involved in Canadian politics. <laughs> Jewish politics, quite enough for me. Speaking of politics, uh, in the United States at the moment, presidential race, uh, the... So the uh, most successful Jewish candidate ever to run for president is Bernie Sanders. He's had more success than any other Jew has ever had in the United States. Uh, but he's not uh, very explicit about uh, his Jewishness. So he was asked about this last week in one of the presidential debates. And he gave an answer, but he was very proud to be a Jew. And he spoke about his family's history in the Holocaust. And that provoked a very interesting comment by a Canadian, Charles Krauthammer, who works in the United States now many years, commentator, who's also Jewish. And he said, he, Charles Krauthammer said, there are three answers to why, what makes one Jewish. He said one is Judaic practice. Second is what you might call broadly a social conscience, uh, the tikkun olam, to repair the world, to contribute to the common fabric. And the third is related to the Holocaust. And Krautheimer said that he respected and understood Sanders' answer, but he thinks that the millennial history of the Jewish people should not depend or depend too much on the answer that Sanders gave. He would have preferred one of the first or second answers. Uh, as the chief rabbi of a diaspora community, which is preoccupied, as all diaspora communities are, with what does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to hand on uh, the heritage of 
Jewish heritage to the next generation. Where do you see the balance if you want to use Krauthammer's three options? The, <clears throat> one of the doyens of Holocaust scholarship, one of the people who really did the early and path-breaking work was a historian called Lucy Davidovitz. Towards the end of her career, she came to the conclusion that perhaps she had succeeded too much. And she said, if we carry on like this, our children will learn about the Greeks and how they lived, about the Romans and how they lived, and about the Jews and how they died. And so she herself wanted us while never forgetting the Holocaust to emphasize the other dimensions of Jewish existence. Now, the people that I learned that lesson from most, and I learned most from these people more than any of my other teachers, were the Holocaust survivors. It was the Holocaust survivors who did not spend all their lives looking back at the Holocaust with the most extraordinary moral and spiritual courage. They didn't even talk about their experiences, many of them. Even to their spouses, even to their children, not for 50 years. What did they do? They looked forward. They affirmed life. They built lives for themselves. They married and had children because many of them had lost all their families in the Holocaust, and with absolute and exemplary faith, they placed their faith in life and the future, not death and the past. And I learned that from them. So we must never forget the Holocaust. But being Jewish was not defined by Auschwitz. Let me be very blunt with you. To be a Jew, to be a child of Abraham is to be true to your faith and a blessing to others regardless of their faith. And if we all just lived by those two principles, we would have a better and more hope-filled world. Thank you. Okay. So I uh, promised that I, I promised two questions, and I kept my promise. I'll just say as a word of thanks to Rabbi Sachs that uh, one of the most extraordinary experiences I had, and that I didn't expect it when I was doing my theological studies in Rome, the best biblical course I took was not for my priest professors, who were the majority but from an American Jewish layman, Leon Kast, Dr. Leon Kast from Chicago, who taught a short seminar on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So not everything we were talking about today, but and it produced that beautiful book, The Beginning of Wisdom. And I feel like tonight in this conversation, I've returned to those happy days of that seminar back in 99-2000. Uh, so, Rabbi Sachs, thank you very much for your time and your wisdom. You're most welcome here. God bless. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.